0: I was listening to some of our teenagers from our church uh, have a conversation a few weeks ago, and they were talking about a situation that one of them had just read in a book. Um, It's a pretty famous situation. You you, you know the Columbine uh, school murders, remember this? Nineteen ninety something—I can't remember—and apparently, a, a young Christian girl had been murdered by one of these guys. And but before she had been killed, uh, the guy asked her, "Are you a Christian?" To which she said, "Yes." And then he killed her. And the two teenagers I was listening said they were they were talking about this and they were wondering what would they do, how would they be, sh- you know, how would they react. And they were saying yes, they'd be afraid. Um, but if they said yes, it would be, it'd be over quickly. This is what they were thinking. But the thing was, they didn't want to say no. If they said no, this is what they were thinking about. They would live, yes, for sure. But they were thinking they'd be filled with guilt for having denied Jesus. And I said to them, I was listening at this time, and I, I jumped in. I said, well, you know, if you said yes, then God, God will be glorified. Um, but if you said no and you survived, God's grace is so great that his love for you would still be the same. And we'll come back to that in a while. But um, I want to flag up this idea that God's grace is upsetting. Because when I said that, they didn't buy it. And in the Christianity Explorer course that we're doing, actually, uh, that we're running across the road, one question that has come up fairly often is this idea of how can God let someone who repents at the end of a horrible life um, come into a relationship with God? It just seems unfair. There's things about grace that upset people. And likewise, the two teenagers I was talking to seemed unsure that knowing God still loves you would be enough to deal with the guilt that they would have for denying Christ and giving into fear. But today's passage, tonight's passage, sorry, speaks, addresses these issues directly. Let's look at it. Um, Christoph has already covered his birth, and we're, we're, we're going to go over his, his adult life. It's a well-known life, and no wonder, because it's got many elements that are memorable uh, Incredible scenes like 150 pairs of foxes with flaming torches tied to their tails. I think that's that's one of my favorite images in the Bible, you know. If I could go back and look at anything, I'd like to see that one. The riddle of of honey found in the carcass of a lion. The image of an eyeless Samson tied between two pillars. Um, And then, of course, there's Samson himself. This man of incredible strength. A leader of God's people who does not care to be seen that he gives in to his, his lust many times. What kind of a man is he? And this story is burned into the brain of many people. I'm told it's a Sunday school favorite. Not going to Sunday school, I don't know. I trust that's true. I'm also told, and forgive me if I'm wrong, that the tendency is to portray him as a sort of a Jewish hero, a, a superman, if you like. And to use a phrase that I've got a bit of slagging for, Nothing could be further from the truth. He's awful. (laughs) Let me be absolutely clear. There is is no part of his life, well, there's almost no part of his life that is commendable. But we'll come to that. Firstly, we've got to ask the question, what's going on here? What is God up to in this passage? Well, we read there a second ago that the Lord was looking for an occasion, which came into the first couple of verses, he was looking for an occasion to confront the Philistines who were ruling over Israel. Now in some ways you'd think, well, that's a normal judges kind of cycle, you know, the way things go on in judges that we've been looking at, but it isn't. Remember way, way back at the start of the book, chapter two, maybe you don't, but the Lord reminds the Israelites that he said to them, I will never break my covenant with you. And what's this Covenant. It's the covenant he made with the Israelites, with Abraham, and then restated with Moses. He said he will be their God and they will be his people. And a covenant is kind of like a promise. There are some conditions. There are blessings for being obedient and there will be discipline for being disobedient. But despite these conditions, as Judges repeatedly shows, he will always be their God. No matter how often or how far someone will fall away, Always, 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 there will be a people of Israel who look upon the Lord as their God. He has promised that this will be so. So what that means is that when the enemies, through that relationship between God and Israel, arise, God eventually deals with it. The covenant has got to be maintained. And this is what we see in this book time and time again. And this is what we see here. But this time, as has happened before, yes, the Israelites did evil. And God gives them over to the Philistines. The Philistines rule over them. And like, they're, they're a brutal bunch, you know. This whole bit about burning the, Samson's wife and father-in-law to death. It's horrible. And in chapter 16, they pluck out Samson's eyes. They're not picnic, you know. However, this story is different. Because with all the other stories in Judges, when things get bad for the Israelites, eventually, what do they do? They call out. They get desperate. And they call out to the Lord. But this time they don't do it. This time God has to raise up a judge who will save them without them calling for one. That's the unique factor here. Unlike the other stories, we don't read of the Israelites groaning under the rule of their oppressors. Instead, we see a picture painted in these chapters of Israelites and Philistines living alongside each other without much complaint. Which, by the way, shows us that an absence of strife between communities doesn't always equal peace that is blessed by God. There are, it would seem, some types of peace that are not good. And if the peace you have gained is done so at the expense of faithfulness to God, then beware, it's not a peace that's blessed by God. The simple truth is the people of Israel have accommodated themselves to living under the Philistines. They got cozy with the way things are there. They're all right with it. And we see proof of this in, for say, chapter 15, verse 11. And the men of Judah give out to Samson about what he has done to the Philistines. Philistines come up and say, this guy has been doing this. And Judah, the men of Judah, go and they complain to Samson. They say to him, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? This is a statement of people who have totally accepted the current regime. To them, Samson's only annoying the status quo and they don't want it. They don't like that. They don't even get excited when Samson shows that he's capable of defeating these people. And he is. But in, remember the other judges? In a lot of those stories, the judge is shown to be worthy of being a judge by some battle that he wins. But in this case, Samson shows that. But do they act like he could be a possible redeemer? No. It doesn't even come up. In fact, they want to hand him over to the Philistines. The problem the Lord has here then and the reason that he has to raise up Samson is that if things continue the way they are, then eventually there won't be a worshipping community of faithful Israelites because they will have completely assimilated to the Philistines. They'll marry them, they'll follow their customs and the worship of Yahweh will disappear in exchange for the worship of Dagon. Anyway, that's the situation. God has to find a way to rescue his people who don't even want to be rescued. And, you know, I think, I think I repeat myself a lot up here, but anyway, I think I've made this point a few times, but it's worth making again, even though it's simple enough. If God wants the person to come to him, it's going to happen. Have you got a neighbor, a friend, a family member, a child, Who's not following the Lord. And not only are they not following the Lord. But they're a particularly hard case. Yeah. Stone cold towards Jesus. Look if that person. Is a part of God's chosen ones. Then no matter what their lives. Might indicate with regards to their disposition. To God. He will bring them in. And look I know whenever you start talking about. Chosen people and predestination. And all that stuff. You can get tied up in knots. But. But. Although I had a conversation today that was quite encouraging about it. But here's something that helped me deal with it. If any of you have a desire for someone to become a Christian, yeah, even the hardest case, if you've got a desire for that person to become a Christian, someone who, like we've been talking about, could it not be that God has put that desire in you because he's going to use you and your prayers to bring them into his kingdom? Why do you have a desire for that person to be saved in the first place. And if you think that's just fancy double speak or clever philosophical wrangling of words, look at what happens in the story. Do you think God needs Samson to bring back the Israelites? A few times in the Bible, God actually opens up the ground and swallows people. He could do that right here, right now with the Philistines, but instead he chooses to work through a very, very sinful man. In fact, he chooses to work through a man who, in many ways, doesn't even want to be doing God's work. So if God can bring back to him some people who don't even want to be brought back, and he does this by using someone who really couldn't care less, then there is hope for even the hardest of cases out there. I've had spiritual conversations with people who uh, lap up what I'm saying. And they always seem interested, but nothing ever comes out of it. And then I've met people who have no time for God or the gospel and the next thing I know I'm hearing some story that they're in church or that their, their hearts are melted and they're talking about God. Never stop hoping, folks. Never stop. To get back to Samson, what more can we say? Well, in a way he kind of sums up the poor spiritual state of Israel throughout the book of Judges. Look, for instance, of this story that we read about him getting married. Firstly, he marries a Philistine, but God's law was that one was not supposed to marry outside of the nation. You may be familiar with this rule. Israelites were supposed to marry only Israelites. Not, it needs to be said, out of any concern for racial purity, but because of theological purity. Marrying into another culture meant that, at the very least, one would come in contact with that other person's religions, but more than likely, one would be tempted to follow their other religion. And as we know, the Bible is very clear that there is only one God. And worship of anything other than that, other than the Lord, is a serious sin. So whilst the law seems overly prohibited, maybe, to our modern ears, its purpose is deeply spiritual. And disobeying it is like sticking your finger up at God. And Samson does it without any thought. In fact, his parents give out to him, but he pushes back. And secondly, his parents do give out to him about his choice of wife because they know the story, they know what the law is, but he completely dismisses their protests against such a marriage. That's another sign of his bad spiritual state because respect for parents was paramount. Because back then, um, again I've said this loads of times, a person did not see themselves as an individual with the right to do what their desires wished. That's how we operate but that was different times. You thought of your family, your tribe, and your country first and foremost. But for Samson, such considerations of family and clan don't come into it. He will do what he wants. He's, actually, he's kind of a very modern person. He upends tradition, and he drives on with his own agenda. And not only is he modern in the way that he's uh, an indivi- big into his own individuality, but he also suffers from a particular sin that seems to be, I don't I don't know if it's more prevalent today, but it seems to me anyway, which is lust. And um, <clears throat> I was talking to a guy, I was talking to him online, and, um, he's not a Christian, and I told him that I was doing this sermon on Samson, and uh, his reaction was, Samson, what a fool! And he was talking about this whole thing with, Delilah, Samson's, this, this whole thing with Delilah is well known because four times, four times Samson is sitting there with her and four times he lets her try and get the secret out of him and each time she basically calls in the guys and they're going to kill him and he keeps coming back. What? He seems okay with it. What's going on? And he clearly has a problem with lust. 14 verse 7 tells us, He decides as well as well, sorry, 14 verse 7 7 tells us he decides to marry his first wife on the basis of her looks alone. 16 verse 1, I didn't read it out, but he visits a prostitute, and then there's this whole story with Delilah. Lust. It's big business these days, isn't it? And I gotta say one thing, right? Look at what happens here to Samson. He's in bed with this beautiful woman, and he's so intoxicated with the sex he's having that he's willing to overlook the fact that she tries to betray him to his chief enemy four times. Here he is in bed saying to himself, oh, this feels good. Ain't nothing wrong with it. Um, Money, sex, and power, folks, they're the, the three big ones that draw so many of us away from the Lord. And tonight we see an example of the allure of sex in action. It brings, like the other two, Um, a a kind of a calming effect that makes any possible drawbacks seem illusory. It seems so good. How could it be wrong? It feels so good. What what does it matter? What might happen because of what I'm doing? It feels good. And you know, let let me be straight, right? Because, although if if you listen to the newspapers or listen to the television and read the newspapers... You'd swear that sex was the number two thing that we talked about in church after Jesus. But in my experience, you rarely hear talk of it at all. Let that not be said of me. God has generally two things going on, folks, in any command he gives us. There's a purpose in it that helps fulfill his bigger purposes, and there is a reflective component, something about doing the very thing they were commanded that reflects something of the glory of God. And with regard to sex, fidelity within a marriage and chastity for a single person is simply the best way to build the Christian community that God wants for his people. And the same thing reflects that part of the glory of God, which is his faithfulness both to us and to other members of the Trinity. So in summary, I've kind of said an awful lot there, but in summary... Marriages build the world that God wants us and points us to who he is. And if you're sleeping around or sleeping with someone you haven't married yet or cheating on your spouse, you're undermining God's world and you're detracting from the glory of God. And also, let me say, particularly to any of you who are single and find this hard, let me say this. When you refuse to have sex before your marriage, you're being obedient to God You're helping to build the community he made for us and you're glorifying God in ways the world cannot comprehend. Don't give that up just because everything you feel, the person you're with is telling you that it's okay, it's good. Don't do it. Where are we? Yes, Samson's not a great man of God. He's got a problem with lusts. He's got lots of problems. Where did he go wrong? The heart of Samson's problem is that he assumed that his gifts were from God, that his gifts from God were his to do as he pleased. Now, in some ways, his whole life shows this. His blatant disregard for the law and his use of his strength as he saw fit testifies this. But really, the key verse is at the end of the Delilah story, when he finally tells her about the hair and the men come in for him. And he gets up and he says to himself, I will do as I have before. And you see, the reason he lets Delilah do what, he do, what she does is not just bound up in his lusts. I mean, he's not a total His Sex or no sex, if his powers go, he's in trouble. But he appears confident that they won't. Why? Well, you see, as Christoph told us last week, he's a Nazarite consecrated to God. And most of us remember that, that means that you, he couldn't shave his hair. But there are other conditions imposed on him as well. And if you look at Numbers chapter 6, you will find out all of them. But it will say there that a Nazarite has two other conditions besides being told not to cut his hair. They can't drink anything that comes from grapes, which mostly means no alcohol. And they can't touch anything dead, which means no corpses of animals or people. Did you catch that? A Nazarite, then, can have nothing to do with death, drink, and razors, right? But Samson, as we've seen, is a carousing killer. He breaks the conditions for being a Nazarite on a number of occasions prior to the thing with Delilah. When we see him, we see him, well, we see him do loads of things. In 14.8, he scoops the honey out of the carcass of a lion breaking the law of not touching anything dead we see him break his vow on drinking when he hosts a wedding feast and again it's not clear from the text but make no mistake about it it wasn't tray bakes and slur that they were eating and drinking at his wedding and then of course he kills a lot of people including one time when he kills them with the jawbone of a freshly dead donkey to put it another way he makes a lot of corpses by killing with the jawbone of a fresh corpse. So, in fact, in almost every story, bar one, I think, in almost every story from his life that we read, he's breaking his Nazarite vow. So when it comes to Delilah and her demands, he don't care if she finds out. He has called on his super strength whenever he has needed it. Despite, but despite his rule breaking, nothing has changed. He still has it. So if he's got this far will break in every other rule, why not this one as well? So really my point is, and I hope at this stage the heroic figure of a great man of God is rendered clean out of your heads, but he's not a model for us in any way. But, Richie, you say, maybe you're not. What about his faith? Does he not talk to God? Does he not pray to the Lord? Is he not mentioned in the New Testament as a man of the faith? Yes, he is. But look at this. He talks to God twice. The first time, 15 verse 18, he prays to God, but it's almost a demand. And in truth, what he does is he complains to God that God doesn't help him. Which, given the fact that everything he has comes from God, is kind of ironic. Then, more, more famously, there is this business of his last prayer where he, for, where he prays for strength just one more time and indeed God grants it to him and he pulls the pillars of the Philistine temple down on top of them. Now, as I was kind of saying earlier, God will use us, he used Samson and our intentions for his purposes. So ultimately, God wants the Philistines to be removed But Samson doesn't do this for God. He does it for himself. That's what he says. I want revenge. And not only that, but in this very last act of his life, he actually makes a complete mockery of God's laws and God's ways. Because look at what he says. He says he wants revenge for his two eyes. Now, I'm sure many of you know that arguably one of the most famous articles of Jewish law is the law of an eye for an eye. So to be obedient to it, he would have had to remove one set of eyes. But instead, he kills over 3,000 people. So in fact, he breaks the law multiplied by 3,000 times. He is a violent, murderous, lustful man with little faith and little regard for God, who gave him the very powers that made him. Why is he in the Bible? Why does the New Testament list him as an example of faith? Well, there's a couple of things. I think there's, uh, the more I think about it, there's maybe four or five, but I'll give you two. Firstly, there's a lesson here for us. Because there's a lot of gifted people in this room. I've been getting to know you over the last two years. Two years. And there's, yeah, there's a lot of really gifted people here. It's a strange conglomeration of gifted people. And what the story of Samson points us to is that if we use these things for our own glory, we will eventually get eaten by them. In a curious kind of irony that I suspect, suspect is not a coincidence, just as with the other judges, when the Israelites started worshipping the false gods of the nations around them, Eventually, they became enslaved by those very same gods. The thing they worshipped were the end of them. And here, with Samson, there is the clearest image of a man dying by the hands of the thing he worshipped. In this case, his own strength. He pulls down the temple on top of himself. The very thing that he looked to more than God, the very thing that he looked to to get him true life all the time, was this gift that God had given him. And in the end, it's the very thing that ended him. And of course, you know, we've, we've talked about this uh, very thing in nearly every sermon in this series about idolatry. But let me add this. In this story, God lets him run ahead with his ideas until the very end. And the lesson, I think, is simple. Don't let the good results or even positive feelings that you have about your sin, let you think that your sins are blessed by God. Let me I think that's not clear up. Don't let good results or positive feelings that you have from the way you live your life make you think that the sins you know you're committing are blessed by God. So you feel happy? So people are being blessed by what you do? If it's against the law of God, it's against God. His discipline will not always take the form of writing you a personal letter telling you what you've, gone, you've done wrong. He's already written a book and we should know it. Sometimes his discipline will be letting the very thing that you are putting your fate of faith in instead of him take its own payment. Secondly, Samson is an example of faith. He is an example of faith. Because faith needs not to be a pure thing or even a great thing. It just needs to be there. And Samson's an awful man, but he did have faith. It couldn't be in any way called a great faith. It was clouded by all sorts of bad ideas about what God found acceptable and a real lack of understanding of the nature of God, but it was faith nonetheless. And like good Protestants all over the world will say, it's by faith alone that we are saved and accepted by God. We are used, we are used, sorry, to having godly women and men held up as an example of what the Lord would have us to do. But what the Samson story shows us is that God often unites himself to some very, 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 very broken and sinful people. Now, how does that make you feel? Samson is used by God, but he's horrible, he's sexist, he's violent, he's vengeful, he's proud, he's a poor representation of the Lord, and his leadership on the whole is not great. In fact, as Christoph will show next week, or whenever we're going to do this next, the Israel that Samson leaves behind is a mess, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a horrible mess. And it's no wonder when they had such a leader as he. And yet, and yet, and yet, God uses this man of faith. Why? Because God's grace is far deeper and more potent than anything we can imagine. Sometimes I think we try to uh, sanctify God's choice of us. You know, a few years as a Christian, get a few corners knocked off you, start listening to some good teaching, start making better choices, you got better behaved friends. And we start thinking, well, of course God would choose me. Uh-uh-uh. He chooses us out of sheer grace. Nothing in my hands I bring, says the song. And salvation is by faith alone so that no one can boast, says Paul. You see, the teenagers that I was talking to, they weren't sure how the grace of God could ever be greater than their guilt. And I'm sure that given the example they were dealing with of someone who denied Christ, there would be some prayer and good counseling needed. But, grace triumphs over everything. Eventually it finds its way and eventually it alone will satisfy. Even in the case of a guilt-seared conscience of someone who cowardly denied Christ in public. And I think This grace kind of scares us, actually. As I was saying, when we talked about it at Christianity Explored, there's a bit of resistance to this extreme grace. I think the reason is that we like to think we can contribute to God's salvation of us, contribute something to God's reasons for choosing us. But if he can walk through and pour out his love onto the likes of Samson, then that would suggest that he really doesn't need anything from us. And as the rest of the Bible makes clear, he doesn't. And that's it.